Okay, we should be live on Facebook and back to Zoom. Okay, so just a note for the translator. I'm not recording this. You are, right? Okay, all right. Sorry, I can't hear you. Maybe I should wear my... Um, my earphones, uh, but no, because uh, you would be on another channel anyway. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. So, um, okay, let me just mute. Let me just mute my computer and my phone. Otherwise, it's going to be a whole bing bong. Oh, they tell me that they cannot hear me on Facebook. Okay. Oh, maybe I haven't selected the right microphone. No, I have. The audio is not coming through Facebook. Well. I don't know what to do about Facebook. I mean, my microphone is on. Testing. Testing. It's out. No, I, I, I am on on Facebook, so everybody can hear me. I don't know. So I'm going to start. Um, Okay, so welcome everybody, the six of you that are there. <laughs> I was not expecting a huge turn up given the topic, and that's fine. A uh, little disclaimer, I'll be doing a lot of disclaimers. Um, the first one is that... Um, I lost it already. Uh, the first disclaimer was that... That's not coming to me. But anyway, yes, I was um, not expecting a lot of people to come because given the, the schedule and the other speakers who are speaking straight from the scriptures, uh, it seems a bit, mm, you know, less than to talk about um, pranayama. Excuse me just a second, just to make sure that, yeah, okay, so the audio is working on Facebook. All right. Oh yeah, that was the first disclaimer. I, disclaimer: I did all my prayers, so in case I look like a nonconformist, as you know from my previous um, uh, series of talks, I do my prayers before just to make the best use of this uh, one hour that people log in to listen, and also the ones that will listen to the recording later on. So just rest assured that I just prayed to be a transparent vehicle and to be speaking about prana from a Gaudiya perspective, which is the title of this um, presentation. And um, the second disclaimer is that, as many of you may know, the guest season here in Madhuvan, actually the first disclaimer and a half is that we're in the middle of the cicada season. So 
I'm sorry about this noise. It's not your computer. It's not my computer. But the cicadas are like very, very... Um... Okay. Okay, I need to stop these uh, messages because I don't know if they're for me about the talk or about private stuff. So, yes, the cicadas are very fiercely proclaiming their will to mate and there's nothing I can do about it. All I can do is speak louder uh, and apologize for this constant noise. At least it's not rain on the roof. Okay, so the second disclaimer is that the um, guest season just ended. Guru Maharaj, my Guru Maharaj, Tripurari Maharaj, left uh, Madhuvan on the 20th of January, but then we had two somewhat unexpected guests who came and stayed here for 10 days. Um, so I was, um, we were still in like guest mood and uh, I did prepare for this presentation, just not as well in terms of like PowerPoint presentation and, and uh, collecting my thoughts, not as well as the previous one. One more reason to pray for like, you know, inspiration to come through my mouth so that I can talk about prana and pranayama and uh, be speaking Gaudiya Siddhanta. So, um, my idea for these four meetings was um, roughly, because we saw last time that it's really hard once the conversation kicks in to really stick to a schedule and, you know, this is the first meeting we, we have to talk about this and then the second we have to talk about that. But roughly, I will be speaking about the idea for this presentation and just in very generic terms in this one meeting. And then in the second meeting we'll be talking about pranayama in more physical, maybe boring uh, terms, but I mean you have to know what it is that we're talking about in order to look at it in a Gaudiya perspective. And then the third meeting will be more uh, of the realizations and the actual way that a Gaudiya could approach uh, pranayama or just have an opinion of it and and in the fourth one I was thinking of leaving it open for um, questions or just see all the citations wherever prana is mentioned in our prayers in our scriptures prana both as in life force there's a lot of uh, mention of prana or just very physical references to to prana in our scriptures so as far as today um, I can tell you a little bit about the idea that I had and why I had it after I have a sip of water. Srila Padmanabh Maharaj asked me graciously to give classes for the month of uh, February. And I had another idea in mind, <clears throat> but then somehow I started to have these um, realizations popping in my head about um, pranayama and, and uh, the approach and um, my generic feeling whether the theme was pranayama or the idea that I had for for this month or for the next time that um, Padmanabh Maharaj would ask me to speak was not much to talk from the scriptures and a section of the scriptures per se because whether I am distracted with my business activity my work or it's just my lack of qualification it feels like very time consuming to talk from scriptures about the scriptures now the truth is that a lot of people will choose a verb a verse to talk about i've witnessed a lot of classes 
in other institutions especially, where the class is about a verse and then they talk about psychology and current events, whatever is on their minds, and the, the verse is just there as a background. So that's something that doesn't quite attract me. So uh, I, I, I have no problem uh, talking about the scriptures, uh, from the scriptures and about the scriptures, especially because whether it's about prayer or my presentation on prayer or this one about um, pranayama, I did have to dedicate time to collect my thoughts in the very least, but more than that, to uh, you know, collect uh, facts and, and, and use them as base for my uh, presentation. So might as well study the scriptures at this point. Now, um, one thing that I feel is uh, that I feel strongly about is this aspect of a Vaishnav demonizing. A Vaishnav doesn't demonize, if anything, a, a, a Vaishnav Krishnaizes everything, sees everything in relation to Krishna. So kind of like to chip at this mentality or attitude of like, oh, we didn't do that, oh, pranayama is for these people, oh, the mayavadis, oh, the impersonalists, oh, the karmis, which I just cannot stand. Um, I thought, how about talking about one of these topics and see how Gaudiya, uh, how they can be tinged or seen through a Gaudiya lens Given that, you know, that's what a Vaishnava does. Not only they don't demonize, they don't see demons, they don't look for demons. But there are so many instances where, you know, we're called to have a bee eye compared to a fly eye. For those who don't know, the bee eye is always looking for the nectar and a fly eye is always looking for poop or decomposing uh, bodies. So, um, I thought... I would uh, give uh, these um, kind of talks in light of what my Gumraj is fond of quoting when referring to Srinamaraj. Not quoting, but um, mentioning how when, uh, Shula, uh, when Shula Prabhupada left, a lot of devotees felt without a shelter and um, they found, they seeked and found the shelter of other Vaishnavas. And mm, I don't want to say that it's part that it's pratishta on the on the side of these Vaishnavas. First of all, first of all, first of all, because I don't know them, and secondly, because I don't expect a Vaishnav to have pratishta. But that could be the case, or it could be the inexperience of the devotees approaching them. But this climate set in, where some devotees started to feel like, oh, so and so start uh, talks about so many high things that I couldn't feel in. Iskon, let's call it as it is, because at that time in the West there was only Iskon. Um, and so discrimination started to ensue. Oh, so-and-so says it like it is. He talks about these things that weren't talked about in, those, in that situation, in that society. And um, my Guru Maharaj is fond of mentioning the fact that Sri Sridhar Maharaj would not talk about, you know, obscure uh, lila, manjari lilas and things from some scripture about some very, very intimate or uh, high uh, things happening from the lila point of view. But nevertheless, he was a very elevated... So in other way, he was saying that an elevated Vaishnav does not talk about elevated things necessarily, but he can talk about the most mundane and 
current and common things, but from the standpoint of, you know, the highest consciousness, from the highest uh, point of view. Not that I have this, the highest point of view, but I'm saying that it's a, a very good exercise to just start from what we have around us and like look horizontally, left and right, see what's around us, what we think is around us, what we think we are looking around us, and like starting from the very, from the ground and then look up and see if we can make it a more and more elevated affair. So um, in light of that, I started to, I decided that if and when Padmaraj Maharaj would um, um, ask me to, to speak uh, again, I would just like to talk about, well, the thing is that I just want to talk about Krishna. So no matter what the topic is, you could uh, see it as an independentist, kind of like free spirit. I just want to talk about what comes to my uh you know, to my mind, and then I'll just give it a title, like, yes, pranayama, Gaudiya perspective, or next time it'll be something else, but then I just talk about Krishna in any which way that comes to my mind. Um, so it's a mixture, actually. It's just me wanting to talk free free wheel, but which is hard, actually. It's, it's not as easy as having a topic that you can study and just talk about that, at least you have. Acharyas to quote and verses to, to, to quote. It's a mixture of that and also wanting to, you know, soften the approach that certain Vaishnavs, or let's say practitioners, because again, a Vaishnav has a totally different view of the world, but certain young practitioners would have based on what they hear over and over from older Vaishnavs or certain comments in the scriptures etc. Now, so the third disclaimer is that because I haven't quite organized my thought, I'll be speaking more slowly to the delight of the translator, uh, or at least, you know, less, less quickly than last time, where I was all organized and I knew what I was going to say. So it's going to be a nice and, and chill presentation, full of breathing and, and, and thinking and sharing uh, insights. Okay, so... Um, What was I saying about that? My presentation. Anyway, so now it just so happens that I wanted to give a Gaudiya perspective on pranayama. Right, like I said before, to uh, dismantle this attitude, this like nasty, ah, we don't talk about this, we don't discuss that, we don't adopt that practice. But also because I had my own realizations about uh, what pranayama does, what breathing does, and breath control, which is not exactly a good term for pranayama. And because I have my own health issues. So is, uh, if pranayama can help you have a clearer mind, have less anxiety, have less physical problems so that you can chant better, so that you can be less physically affected, why not? That is one consideration. But I must say that um, it is true. <laughs> I, ironically, the more I started to read into what people have to say about pranayama, and of course I went to, well, what's his name? Um, Swami Vishnu Devananda, for example, is somebody who wrote a book very much in detail. And a lot of uh, yogic, you know, when you think of pranayama, you think of yoga, of uh, 
a certain approach to reality that bhaktas don't have. So as I was reading there, what they have to say about pranayama, realize well, I guess Prabhupada is right in, in um, you know, um, putting down pranayama as a practice, because it comes with the whole process. It's part of hatha yoga. It's a discipline. It's a very um, consuming pursuit and, and, and practice that um, could distract and detract from the practice of bhakti. So as a, when I titled this a Gaudiya perspective, it means originally I thought it meant how a Gaudiya can see pranayama in Gaudiya terms in, in, according to Gaudiya sensibility. But much later on, as in half an hour ago, I realized that there is merit to, you know, given the Gaudiya perspective on pranayama in calling it as it is, compared to the benefits that you can get from bhakti that, that you know, may include the benefits of pranayama and beyond. So the beyond is what may be distracting or kind of um, confusing us sometimes because we have such a high lofty goal and I don't know, I have a feeling, I guess personally in my own life, but I do hear and, and perceive people around me that, you know, you kind of keep your head in the clouds and you don't know if your feet are dangling or even touching the ground. Um, all right, so let's begin officially. I would like to ask the six of you, <laughs> technically five of you, because one of them is a double user. Um, right now, well, actually, you know, um, I knew I would have a, a slow, a, a little turn up for this kind of presentation, but uh, you just never know. In my prayers, I pray that I could change hearts, starting from my own, by just talking about prana. To I, I prayed that my words would be charged with prana, because prana is not only breath, and we're going to discuss that very soon. Because these lessons are uh, recorded, so you just never know who's going to stumble into them. And then, you know, maybe have some eye-opening experience again. Not because I am the one speaking, but because words are spoken through me. And uh, you know how much, since my previous presentation, how much I invest in, in praying and in prayer. So, um, right, I wanted to ask the five or six who are present in this um, video call, how many of you are breathing right now? I'm leaving a few seconds for the translator. Actually, I'm going to have another sip of water. Chances are, I'm not waiting for the answer because I'm quite sure that if you're here, you are breathing. So, my first realization was how mm, profound, I'll be saying profound a lot. It's because a lot of things related to breathing alone, something so basic, to material life can have your mind go all the way if I manage to organize my words and thoughts to Radharani. We'll see that in the third encounter. And, and that's what I meant by a Gaudiya perspective. Uh, so, all right, let me spill all my beans. I read a, uh, a book, an article, a chapter years ago about pranayama. And they were saying how when we breathe in, we should think of so... And, no, sorry, when we breathe out, how does it go? 
breathe in, think of so or meditate on, on so. And when we breathe out, we meditate on hum. And for those who don't know, I'm talking about the Vedic aphorism so hum, which is a very famous utterance uh, among the impersonalists and or Mayavadis. Soham means, uh, in Sanskrit, saha means he. And aham means I. So he, I. I am that. And, uh, you know, one more thing that people are very fond of uh, attacking, or let's say mentioning, but in a bit of an, uh, of an accusatory tone. Oh, they think that I am that, but I'm a servant of Krishna. Well, slow down, because it's not as black and white. And um, I'm not faulting anybody for making it sound black and white. Maybe it was never meant to be perceived like that, but it sure was perceived as a very black and white categorical statement over the decades. And I do understand the sense of urgency that Srila Prabhupada had among many. I mean, he's probably the only one who brought bhakti to the world in the 60s and 70s. So in a, in a notion of uh, yogis or pseudo-yogis who came to the West in the 60s and 70s, a sense of urgency and not wasting time, first of all, is a symptom of a bhava bhakta. And I'm not implying that Srila Prabhupada was a bhava bhakta or any more or any less than one. But certainly he was more advanced than me, I can tell you that. And uh, let's just say that this sense of urgency to focus on Krishna's service was there. So he conveyed that from his personal standpoint. But also he needed to preach to a bunch of more or less clueless hippies things in the most straightforward way. First of all, because they were just confused. Some of them were just on drugs or they had just uh, abandoned drugs. And so they were like personally, individually confused and clueless because how much did an American know about any of this years ago? My own Gurudeva says that yogurt was an exotic thing in the 60s you know yogurt comes from the caucasus turkey it was not as ubiquitous as it is now in the states in south america and europe as it was in iran turkey and he said yogurt was an exotic foreign thing forget about yoga it was like very very new so um Srila Prabhupada had this sense of urgency and you know to be straightforward plus his own personality and on the other side there were are there were all kinds of um oh how, what would you call them uh, preachers gurus uh you know all kinds of people came from the 60s in the 60s from india to the states so Srila um, Prabhupada kind of needed his voice as a representative of the movement of uh, sankirtan and and, and the, the current of bhakti from chaitanya mahaprabhu to stand out and that's why he spoke in very black and white terms so that people knew exactly what is what and what does what. Sometimes to an extreme, sometimes to a fault. Like, you know, he would uh, say Krishna when the verses would talk about the abhyakta, the unmanifest or the, the absolute. And he would just say Krishna because really it's a feature of Krishna. The absolute can be as personal as impersonal. And, um, you know, given that he's an ambassador of bhakti, he said many times that, you know, Brahman, Paramatma and Bhagavan are all features of the Absolute and they're all fine. Because, by the way, impersonalist doesn't mean Mayavadi. 
But obviously he was stressing bhakti and a bhakti imbibed vision of the world and, and everything. And it's fine. But um, where did I start from? What was I saying? So all these preachers were, were coming to the West to talk about yoga and stuff. So yeah, he was, Srila Prabhupada was doing that to a fault. Meaning that, again, he was mentioning the name of Krishna when the verses were talking about just the absolute or he would have his disciples, uh, painters, put a peacock feather on Varaha or Nasinga to hammer on the point that it is Krishna, it is Krishna appearing as Varaha, it is Krishna appearing as Nasinga Dev. And um, something could be said about that. But if you appreciate the, you know, the spirit in which Srila Prabhupada did that, it, it can all be harmonized. But, but that was the climate. On one hand, confused disciples or prospective disciples. On the other hand, the ocean of sounds coming from um, previous or contemporary other teachers. I wouldn't even know who they are. Uh, say, well, Paramahansa Yogananda was uh, one of them who influenced the West. I'm not quite sure in the decade. Or uh, um, the... Okay, I'm saying yes to Krishna Kumari. That's perfectly fine. So... Um, all these other teachers that came with their own presentations. Um, so that was the climate. Now, I think it's probably time to really relax and um, observe all these other realities around us, parallel to bhakti, in a less, how would you say, insecure way. And just like I said, because we have embraced the path of bhakti, see how we can see them without any you know, concept of, uh, of uh, you know, right or wrong or accusing anybody or, or apologizing for anything, just seeing it as it is, but through the eyes of a Godia. What can be gotten out of, well, in this case, pranayama, like I was saying. After all, anything a Godia does is tinged with their perception, with their feeling. Vaishnavism well, any Vaishnavism, not just uh, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, is a feeling. And in more, say, generic te uh, terms, all we talk about, no matter what the topic, time and again, it's all about, well, one of the main teachings, understanding how consciousness is behind matter, how consciousness um, kind of creates matter in a way, how consciousness um, shapes reality. There is bhava and there is tattva. The tattva is what it is, but how you feel about something really makes it the reality that you perceive. So it makes it, for all intents and purposes, more real. So when I talk about feeling, and a Godia feeling, a Godia perspective, I'm talking not about sentimentalism, but I'm talking about seeing the world and living through the eyes of consciousness because that's what we're called to do no matter what no matter what the topic no matter what the uh, the practice it's um, that's what we are we cannot um, do away with this reality that we're consciousness we might as well understand it if nothing else intellectually and act as such and we will see that our perspective changes and reality will change will either show its true face or will just um, 
just change. We will give reality a different meaning. Consciousness gives matter meaning. All right, so after this big introduction, um, what was I going to say? Um, I asked you if you're breathing. So yes, uh, you're breathing, but how many people think about their breath? And funnily enough, every time without fail, somebody hears something said about breath or reads about breath, automatically they take a deep breath. And you know, your consciousness goes to your breath. And now everybody's everybody, whoever I can see, is smiling because it's true. It, it, it happens every time. You hear about the importance of breathing or how, whatever, anything you hear about breathing, uh, you know, with breath you can uh, uh, alter your level of consciousness, you can control your mind, whatever you hear. And then people start taking a deep breath, like, oh yeah, breathing. And like I was saying, I'll be saying the word profound a lot because it's profound how the metaphor between we breathing, which is such a substantial aspect of our life, breath means life, and we not being aware of breathing. For those who don't know, the breathing is um, uh, ruled by, and that's where I fail you because I cannot remember those te uh, technical terms, but something, the autonomic nervous system or something, the subconscious mind regulates the breathing because it's so important, so intrinsic to our life, to, to us living, that we cannot possibly forget to breathe. And yet we do. Like we do breathe, we don't forget to breathe in and out because it's not even in our control, but we forget that we are breathing. At the same time, every emotion, every thought, every action actually even, is connected to a certain kind of breath. If you're crying, you're sobbing, you're breathing, you're barely breathing and it's a very interrupted breathing. If you're happy and relaxed, your breathing is slowed down. If you're angry, you know, you're panting in such a way. And so many facts uh, are said about breathing that um, gave rise to these uh, realizations I started to mention to mention and uh, hopefully I'll manage to organize my words and thoughts in such a way that I can convey them in just as an inspiring way. Um, so these facts are that, uh, first of all, for those who don't know, in the Vedas, life, someone's lifespan, anybody's lifespan is not measured in minutes or seconds or heartbeats or days as we say in uh, Western vernacular, like your days are counted or whatever. I was surprised to hear that in the Vedic uh, view of things, every human being, every living being really, but let's talk about human beings, has a, an assigned number of breaths. So in this lifetime, I, uh, I have, I, I'm allotted some, I don't know, a couple of million breaths. Now, it's kind of weird because that means, as it is the case, and as yoga is discovered, that if you slow down your breath, meaning we're supposed to breathe 15 times in a minute, what if you breathe just one time, twice, 30 seconds in, 30 seconds out? That means that, you know, 
15 times one minute at the cost at the at the price of 15 or one breathing at the price of 15 you have lengthened your life 15 times if you manage to do that for every minute for every breath but we don't because we're because we're enmeshed with our consciousness and our karma and our thoughts in all kinds of activities that rule our lives and you know a first consideration from a spiritualist's point of view, not necessarily a Gaudiya point of view, and by the way, what I meant by a Gaudiya perspective, I didn't mean something super extra, different, or, or it just meant, given what we know from a very generic, uh, Vedic-based, Shastriya, um, Yukti type of consideration, so reasoning, putting thoughts together based on what the Shastra say, uh, so a very generic one, things that a Mayavadi could say, or an impersonalist could say, or any New Age person could say based on uh, some notions that they got. But, you know, some things will be more specific to a Gaudiya. And in general, like I said, it's just an occasion to talk about Krishna and and the world as we uh, devotees of Krishna and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu on the path of Bhakti will see. So don't expect... Uh, uh, you know, mind-blowing realization, certainly not from me, despite my prayers, because, you know, it depends on the purity of the person who prays. Anyway, <coughs> so I was going to say, uh, the breathing, right, are we living our lives to our fullest potential, or is life living through us? Like, you know, you just, you're just born, you go to school, you get a career, you get a family, and then you die, and then you're like, what happened to my life? Like, our song says, Kamala Dala Jala Jivana Talamala. Our whole life has just slipped away like a, a, a drop of water on a lotus leaf. Which, for those who have never seen a lotus leaf, it's very fatty and very waterproof because, you know, it lives in water, but they need to breathe at the same time so they would just rot otherwise. So life is just slipping away. It, life is living us. We are not living our lives. And that's where pranayama kicks in. But before then, before that, let me go on with um, further consideration. So, our lives are characterized by a very, um, how would you say, set number of breathings, of breaths. So, um, I remember in a Sunday feast, uh, when I was in a Sunday, yeah, Sunday feast in Iskand, somebody quoted Srila Prabhupada, and apparently he was in the audience when he said that um, uh, sex life shortens your life because on account of this, you know, number of breaths, when you are uh, engaged in sexual activity, you breathe very fast. And he actually went with that kind of panting, with a, which I'm not going to do because I don't want to live shorter. <laughs> but... <laughs> But uh, no, it's true, like on both accounts. Yes, you have a certain amount of breaths, of breaths. And if you breathe very short and very fast, you're just shortening the duration of your life. But you could see it in more, how would you say, down-to-earth human relation or human, um, human terms, meaning that if you let anxieties pervade your life, or anger and all these passions and emotions that in turn make you breathe um, faster and make you have short breaths whether it's the short breath 
or the influence of all that anger and anxiety and resentment, either one is going to make your life shorter. The truth and the answer is that it's both. It's, it's, one means the other. They're correlated, they're not. One, the cause of the other. So it's true. If you are not in charge of your life and your emotion, then you will breathe in a certain way that you know, means that you're like succumbing to those emotions. And emotions are very tangible uh, energies. By the way, both the breathing and these emotions are prana. So um, we'll discuss what prana means in a few minutes. Now, I said that um, we have a number of breaths. Another profound thing is that the first thing you do when you appear in this world is take a breath in as a baby. First thing that happens, you just take a breath. If you're unlucky in the West, it's because you've been spanked by an obstetrician. In uh, some, like in India, I think they massage the baby until they breathe normally. Either way, the first thing you do is to take a breath in, and that kind of signs your contract, your debt with the world of karma. In the womb of the mother, there's not a lot of karma you can do. What can you do? You can um, burn karma. You can, uh, you know, you can die in a womb. Um, another consideration of prana, the fetus kind of like partakes with the prana of the mother. They do say, I haven't verified that, but I heard that until the baby's born, it may happen that a soul enters the fetus and then leaves. For some reason, somebody had the karma of spending three months as a fetus, but then they needed to move on. And another soul can step in into that body forming. Because that, that um, uh, fetus kind of like takes prana, the food, the energy, the living energy from the, the mother's body. And so, yes, you can die in the womb. You can suffer the reactions, the repercussions, the karmic repercussions. But you don't do a lot of karma. What can you do? You can kick your mother, but not willingly. It's all like you're not plugged in to the matrix of the material world. So it's very symbolic, this breath in, you just, you start your debt, you start by stealing air that you haven't created to make it very drastic. And, um, you know, it's also meaningful, or in, if you want to see it in this poetic view, that the very last thing you do is give that air back. I mean, you could just say, well, it's just a diaphragm, right? You contract the diaphragm, and it sucks air in, and when you die, that, you know, you just don't have control over your muscles, so the diaphragm snaps out, snaps up, and that's the end of it. But it could be seen, again, through a, a, the lens of a spiritualist, even just a philosopher, but, you know, a philosopher or a spiritualist or a godia among the spiritualists, and it kind of makes you see how, wow, at every breath, it's like being born and dying, and the next breath is not assured. So that's pretty much what my presentation is going to be like, the, the tenor, the, the, the vibes of this presentation. What kind of realizations you can take from just breathing while going to work and, uh, and you know, applying them in your life like, wow, I'm breathing and it can mean that or it reminds me of this. Like they say, there's a famous verse that says that at every rising and setting of the sun, like the sun is taking away your life 
at every um, at every dawn and sunset and uh, so at every breath we could also think it's it's a reminder that i was born in this world and that and that i will die it's a reminder that i'm enmeshed in a in a karmic debt uh trap of debt where i just without even wanting just well, actually as a result of my previous karma i just have to take i'm compelled to take no matter how little the amount of air that is taken into the lungs of a baby it's just you cannot escape it so but you know you're not a baby anymore you're an adult who can reason uh, about these things and um so we've talked about the number of breaths which by the way i didn't mention on account of that yogis well, are celibate so they do away with the pantheon of sex life to begin with and also what does that mean sex life it means that you know you have children you have responsibilities you have anxiety if you're alone you have much more chances to just beg and something you will find to feed to fill your belly but if you're if you have family life another person children becomes more anxiety more absorption of your mind so that's also a way to say that sex life will just shorten your your lifespan but anyway yogis do um celibacy they're celibate so they don't engage in in sex life and most of all they try to stretch their breath as long as they can to hold their breath and we'll analyze all these things in in, in due time with a view to lengthen their lives and hopefully accomplishing something in this life i would guess making sure that it's the last one but um and that's where we defer because the yogic the, the the ego of a yogi well it's not ours i was just um reading recently how a yoga a yogi is um i don't want to sound reductive or dismissing but really somebody who wants to um, follow the path of yoga wants to become the master of the world by just being the mas master of their own bodies or in other words if you can control your mind and you, your own body you control the whole world and it's true to an instant well it's actually quite true there's a lot of truth in that and we'll see what it really what the world really is what the world means and how we interact with the world with uh, through our minds and senses but yeah the the pursuit of a yogi is not ours but what's ironic what really shows you krishna's sense of humor is that in order to become the masters of their own bodies and the, all the energies like uh, all these yoga siddhis becoming lighter becoming heavier you know grasping stuff from somewhere else and reading minds etc they're all done through regulation of prana they all come from a certain practice and all these powers control over yourself and your psychology so in order to become a master you have to undergo such strict discipline you have to be a slave and a servant it's ironic it's funny not funny it's profound there it goes again you need to wake up early you need to um how do you say um, what is the word i'm looking for just mortify your body and your mind your senses your psychology in so many ways under a strict um uh, uh, sadhana 
to become a master, only to realize that, wait a second, I've been a servant, I've been a slave to the cause, you know, uh, it, it, it's really interesting how, you know, we, we on the other hand, and on the other end, on the other hand, acknowledge that the, 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 the owner, the controller, the master, and we willingly also undergo sacrifices, some renunciations, some, you know, adjusting of our worldview, but all the while keeping the master in mind, certainly not no, not thinking of us as the master. And yet, the result is, well, same if not better, because we end up having very close proximity, very close absorption in the master, you know, let's just say in Krishna, and who surrounds him, what he is into, and we just partake of that all, like, you know, the typical example of... Uh, if we're best friends with somebody who's very rich and very famous, we get entrance to, you know, the elite parties or this restaurant or wherever. I had a, a best friend in elementary school who was quite well off. And so his mountain house was in, um, well, in a region of Italy, which is very expensive, where there are a lot of castles. He, was, he didn't own a castle, but it's like very primo tourist landscape, alpine landscape. The other house he had was in Capri, known by many as Capri. No, it's Capri. Capri is very, very... Uh, the real estate in, Car in Capri is through the roof. So I never went to Capri, but I went to his house in Val d'Aosta. And, uh, you know, he just had a lot of money. He knew celebrities. And I was just passively partaking of all that just for being somebody that he liked until we you know parted ways in middle school so that is the difference in approach with uh, bhakti and yoga one of them and i just never realized how like i said a yoga a yogi wants to be the master of the world and <laughs> they end up slaving uh, through their lives and you know and, and, you know for a cause that if you're lucky you realize wait a second what am i doing and if you're well unlucky or if you're successful in your pursuit at least you do have you know uh, a realization you do have um, a transcendental goal you merge with uh, the absolute if that's what they want or they get to see the paramatma and uh, and themselves as a reflection of the paramatma but you know we, we would uh, you know we would have a different uh, preference so what was i saying about that um so yeah, yogis try to lengthen the life, their lifespan by holding their breath and, and breathing as softly and, and slowly as possible. Whereas we, like I said, the moment you talk about breathing, we become conscious of our breath. And that's, there you go again, very profound how we, conscious being, bring our consciousness, in this case, in the sense of awareness, to something so basic like our breathing, because if you think about it, you can stay without sleeping several hours, you can stay without uh, eating or drinking several days or several hours, you cannot stay a whole long without breathing, unless you're a yogi. So life really means breathing, or breath really means life. And yet, we don't pay any attention to our breathing, just like we don't pay attention to our lives. I see, uh, and I don't, I don't want to sound condescending, condescending, but I used to go to Nicaragua every three months. 
um, for visa purposes. I used to go to Nicaragua for three days every 90 days. And, uh, you know, here I'm protected and sheltered in the life of a, in the life of a ashram. And I would see all these people so busy. And I really got this idea that they are the protagonists of the movie of their own lives. They're so important in their little things. And I was there sitting on the bus thinking, everything is so important. Oh, I have to take my little girl and whatever it was to me looked like so like a script, like they, like it was just a, a drama. And they don't really know who they are, not like I know who I am, who I am, at least in theory, I have some kind of feeling of what I'm supposed to think that I am. And uh, so I had this feeling that life was just slipping away. and Or if they gave anything, any value to anything, it was to get him married as soon as possible, or get a job, or, you know, if you want to be, if you're, if you're a little higher than the rest, some people say, I want to leave an, uh, what do they say? I want to make a difference. I want to be remembered after I'm gone. I want to make something that I can be remembered um, for. But still, it's all about me, 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 me. There's no sense of uh, anything higher or better that we can become or, in, or associate with. Now, I'm going to take a little... Um, a pause in the middle of everything to ask if there are any questions or comments because it's uh we're eight minutes um to the end and um last time it was uh, a bit chaotic i had a hard time figuring out how to go live on facebook and stuff so i want to give more uh, i want to give the six people <laughs> who are present in this presentation um a chance to ask any questions either in written or in um in a, you know, with voice. And if not, I'll just go on. Meanwhile, I'm going to mute my phone because it's driving me crazy. Pranam Shamsundar. Yes. Um, so Pranista. I remember... Haribol. Haribol. <laughs> so I remember as a young devotee, I read from Prabhupada's book this idea that uh, we have a certain amount of breath and we shouldn't waste them. And uh, so my immediate thought back then was like, you know, there's clear evidence in science, science, for example, that cardiovascular training lengthens your life, but you hop like crazy when you do cardio training. And so that aspect of it never really made sense to me. Like say, for example, like we got Gurmach into biking, but we specifically wanted him to have a longer, healthier life and bicycling, you know, and so, from the yogic point of view, like, are we actually making a mistake? And Guru Maharaj, gonna, <laughs> obviously, he's not under under the karmic sway in the same way. So I'm just kind of like joking partially. But, you know, just as a, um, like a principle, how, do you, how would you answer that question? Like, does mm -hmm. cardiovascular training actually lengthen your life instead yeah. of shortening it? Yeah, I'm going to ask uh, Kaliuga Pavana if you could hear, you can hear the question, right? I don't need to repeat it or it's only the Spanish ones. Okay. Did you have a time to translate it? All right. So, um, well, yeah, it's true that if you do cardiovascular activity, a lot of things happen. Your lymphatic system 
your heart pumps more, so more nutrients goes to your organs. There's more communication. Uh, you know, the nerves uh, communicate better with the brain. They tell them what needs to be done, what organ is failing, what nutrition needs to go to what organ and everything. On account of all that movement, the lymphatic system, um, you know, takes care of all the impurities and uh, movement is, I mean, I know all about it. Ever since I got diagnosed with the uh, gallstones and uh, hypothyroidism, I've been like, when I'm not looking at, uh, at, uh, at uh, video recipes and street food and all that on YouTube, I'm learning health stuff. So yeah, it's very, very important. My first um, question or response to what you said is, how do you know that that person wasn't supposed to live even longer? Like we don't, the thing is that we don't know how many breaths people are assigned. So what scientists are saying is that on average, people who do cardiovascular activity live longer than people who do nothing at all. These people that do nothing at all, are they free from anxiety? Do they never cry? Do they never get angry? Do they not have sex? Do they not have any preoccupation with sex and what causes them anxiety, what causes them anger? And they're totally enmeshed in all these emotions that I guess we'll see next time are prana and they have a very strong energy that does reflect on the physical sphere. And on top of it, they don't do cardiovascular activity. So yes, if you do cardiovascular activity, if nothing else, you'll get you know physical purification going on you'll get endorphins, you'll feel better, you'll feel like, ah, to hell with my co-worker, I feel so much better after a run, and life is different, oh yeah, so, um, see, it's a matter of perspective, you know, it, it's, um, there's no way to tell how many millions of breaths everybody has assigned for every given birth, so that, that cannot quantify it and, and, and tested uh, by a scientist, a scientist can also match a material condition with another material condition and again to put the godia spin or tinge on everything it's um it, it, you could ignore everything else about the health and just think wow i have a limited amount of breaths i should just uh, make the best use of these breaths by you know pursuing the ultimate goal if you're that lucky to even have a feeling that there is an ultimate goal to life so that would be my answer just off the cuff Thank you. Thank you. So, well, I guess we're three minutes uh, away. Uh, well, I managed to uh, give a very generic presentation. Next time I'll be, you know, that much more prepared by one week. Not that I wasn't prepared this time. I just didn't have a time to collect my thoughts because uh, I have a lot of things going on. And um, or if there's any other question, I'll be happy to. Let me see. Let me just see if there's anything going on on uh, Facebook. I don't see any comments. So, um, yeah, um, next time we'll be talking about, again, you have to pardon, you know, the nature of the of the talk is such that I need to talk about pranayama and what it is, what the benefits are, what happens when you breathe in, when you breathe out, when you hold your breath. And um, otherwise, we're not, we don't have a, a common ground to talk about. But I'll try to, you know, uh, inject any philosophical consideration or spiritual consideration, even more so in the third encounter. So um, thank you, everybody, for uh, participating. And um, 
I hope I was of any help to all the ones present and the ones who will look at the recording. And um, I'll see you next week. Thank you.